0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by my good friend Zevi Freund, in honor of his incredible great-uncle, who is the hero of our story, Yonah Tiefenbrunner. And as well as to his grandparents, Philip and Henny Tiefenbrunner, who Philip, of course, was Yonah's brother and was instrumental in assisting him and enabling his escape. And Zevi also dedicates it to his son's Yoni, who is named for his illustrious great-uncle upon his graduation from a fantastic year of learning and steiging this year and going up to Masifta next year. And may Yoni follow in the footsteps of his illustrious namesake. So before I explain what this series is all about, the Saviors of the Holocaust series is about, and specifically this incredible story of Jonah Tiefenbrunner and his orphanage and the orphans that he saved during the Holocaust in Belgium. Um, before that, I just want to mention a couple of uh, updates. First of all, I'm privileged to share with the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites that I, um, I and Davi Safir uh, together last week uh, we had the privilege of winning. Um, um, some awards in Jewish journalism at the AJPA, the American Jewish Press Association, uh, for articles we wrote uh, together in the Mishpacha magazine. Actually, he wrote a couple of them himself, and he was the exclusive winner uh, of the awards, but another uh, couple of them we wrote together, four in total, Um, One was a feature on Rav Elchanan Vaserman and focusing on his trip to the United States. Another one he wrote was uh, When Zaydi Was No Longer Young, about the uh, first Jewish old age home in the United States. And then there was the one we wrote together called The Eyes That Saw Angels, where we interviewed uh, elderly people, Jewish uh, witnesses who had seen uh, many of the great people from a century ago or from pre-war which was a fascinating uh, project, one of the great, best projects we've done. And then a column we did on Rammilalah Silber of the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway and the Miracle Mets of 1969. So you might want to check out all those articles on our on the Mishpacha magazine's website, excuse me. Um, and and uh, uh, two, two of them he was talented enough to write himself, the other two we authored together. I didn't get a chance to go to Atlanta to participate in this uh, prestigious ceremony, um, but Davi did. And now that we've won awards in Jewish journalism, I feel that we've entered the annals of historic Jewish journalists, maybe like uh, Alexander Ziderboim of the Hamelitz newspaper or Peretz Molenskin of Hashachar or Abe Kahn of the Forverts or Gershom Shokin of Haaretz, or Penny Lifschitz of Yated, or Srili Besser of Mishpacha magazine. Jewish journalists is a pretty prestigious company to be a part of, so we're very proud to be there, be there, especially that one of the categories we won in was sports, so we sports writers uh, as well, like Grantland Rice. Um, so I also had the privilege, together with Davi Safir, um, anything I, big I accomplish is with Davi, of course, so we were invited to be interviewed by the Behind the Bema podcast with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg of Boca Raton. It was a big privilege. He's a very, very special person, a special rabbi, an incredible person. And it was a big privilege to have been there. As you may want to check out the Behind the Bema podcast interview that Davi and I had where we exposed some secrets of behind-the-scenes collaboration that we do together. And in general, you may want to check out the Behind the Beamer podcast. It's an excellent podcast with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. So now let's get to the point, which is this uh, launch of this new series of Jews Saving Jews, the Jewish Saviors of the Holocaust. Um, Sponsorships are available, and not only sponsorships are available, but sponsorships are needed to continue the series. Um, Each week we're going to be profiling... Um, a, a another Jewish savior of the Holocaust, another story of an individual under Nazi occupation. This is not stories about Jews outside of Europe, outside of Nazi occupation, who are saving Jews on the inside. That is a different category, this is not a story of non-Jews risking their lives saving Jews during the Holocaust, That's also a great story, this is about Jews under Nazi occupations, ostensibly they are victims themselves going ahead and saving their brethren, risking their lives really. And doing all they can to save others really an amazing amazing series of course we're not going to profile everybody there's loads of stories like this I'm going to choose a few um, stories that uh, are, are, are really powerful and impressive and important pieces of history so if you'd like to sponsor one of these sponsorships are available and needed to continue the series please email me at Yehuda at YehudaGabra.com uh, so we can continue this uh, incredible series um, the uh, of course, I'm going to have regular episodes interdispersed as well. So we're going to be continuing with having regular episodes of Jewish history soundbites in between the the uh, Jewish saviors of the Holocaust uh, uh, profiles in that series. This um, this specific one that we're opening with is a very interesting story. It's First of all, it's about this Yonotief Tiefenbrunner that I mentioned and how he saved orphans in Brussels and Belgium during the Holocaust by operating in an orphanage legally under the Nazis, uh, um, you know, registered with the Nazis. An incredible story of how he did it and really was treading on thin ice the entire time um, should the Nazis choose to uh, not grant recognition to his orphanage any, any longer. Really a, a unique story, first of all, because um it's unknown that's one of the reasons i chose to do it first and it's quite unique about you know how he he managed to pull this uh, feed off and what he did for these orphans and the third reason why i wanted to open up with it is because we generally overlook western europe the holocaust in holland belgium france italy germany itself is very often overlooked because for, obviously because of demographics we tend to focus on poland Hungary, Lithuania, Ukraine, the Soviet Union, Russia, all the areas in Eastern Europe where most of the uh, victims were from, the smaller Jewish communities were in Western Europe. But there is, uh, you know, very, very important stories of the Holocaust in Western Europe as well. So it will be good to explore that uh, as well. So I actually had the privilege of interviewing, uh, personally interviewing, Yonatif and Bruner's daughter, Judith Schreiber, right here in Beit Shemesh. She lives five minutes from my home. Um, It was an impromptu uh, interview uh, at a Shabbos Shever of her granddaughter, which, you know, I was related uh, as well. So I just happened to bump into her there. And over Shabbos, I interviewed her extensively about this incredible story. And she introduced me to the story of her father, um, which I've been looking into and I read the book about it. I read, read it both. There's a book that is in English and in Hebrew, and I decided to read both to make sure I got the whole story correctly. Um, but first, an overview um, of what Belgian Jewry looks like on at the on the eve of the Holocaust and during the Holocaust so we can understand the context of what the story of Yonatif and Brunner saving these orphans takes place within the context of Belgian Jewry during the Holocaust under Nazi occupation. So pre-war... The, on the eve of the German invasion in May 1940, the Belgian Jewish community um, is in Brussels, Antwer, Antwerp, primarily the big cities, but in some of the outlying areas as well. There's between 75 and 85,000 Jews in the entire country. And the overwhelming majority, I believe over 80%, overwhelming majority, almost, almost all Belgian Jews did not hold Belgian citizenship. Almost all Belgian Jews, there is no real Belgian Jewish community, native Belgian Jewish community, it's almost non-existent. Almost all Belgian Jews were Eastern European Jews from Poland and Russia from before World War One, who arrived, who immigrated to Belgium in the 1920s after World War One, and even before World War One, They fled pogroms, harsh living conditions, during the great immigration at the turn of the century, and then following World War One, especially, there was a great migration to Belgium. Um, so there's, it's mostly Eastern European Jews. Some of the immigrants are German Jews who come in the 1930s who are fleeing Hitler after his rise to power. So there's, there's this incredible situation where almost the entire Jewish community is non-native and don't even hold citizenship of the country. And this is important information to understand the story during the Holocaust as well. So Antwerp has a very vibrant Jewish presence pre-war and... Um, we would call it a very Heimish presence as well. Large shuls, shtiblach, uh, Bate medrish, different Hasidic groups, Chartkiv, bells, ger, viznitz, sigit from all over Poland and Hungary. Agorisi Yisrael was there um, in Zionism and, 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 and also secularization, assimilation, like in every other place. Um, the community had schools of all, all types, all the way up down to Beis Yaakov and and a yeshiva. There was a Haida yeshiva in in the, in, the, in in the city of Haida, uh, Rabbi Shraga Feivel Shapiro, um, which he uh, was a it sent its alumni very often to Mir in Eastern Europe, um, and that is what it looks like on the eve of the war. So then we come to the Holocaust itself. Um, Professor Don Michman, who is one of the greatest Holocaust researchers in the world, who I was privileged to hear in person on several occasions. Uh, So he, among many areas of groundbreaking Holocaust research, which he's done, he's researched the ghettos and the Judenrat and Holocaust historiography and terminology and many other topics. But one of the main things that he's researched is the Jewish community of Holland in the modern era and, of course, during the Holocaust itself and the Holocaust in Belgium. So it's his groundbreaking research that his stuff are the go-to for this topic on the Holocaust in Belgium. The Nazi occupation begins in May 1940. Many Belgian Jews escape to France. There is a process in stages of anti-Jewish legislation. There's the Aryanization of Jewish businesses, discriminatory measures against the Jewish population, ex- exclusion from the civil service, from schools. Their kids are expelled from schools. There's an anti-Shchita law that's promulgated. They're banned from public transportation, from commerce. Uh, from travel, they're they're stripped of all their rights, slowly but surely. There's even pogroms perpetrated against the Jewish population in Belgium. Eventually, in 1941, they're required to wear the yellow star and all sorts of many other restrictions. That's all, and of course, there's no ghettos. There's no ghettos in Western Europe in general. That's for another time whenever we talk about the ghettos and their structure and why they were not in, in Western Europe. In any event, the deportations of Belgian Jewry begin, like in most other places, in the summer of 1942, Belgian Jews are brought en um, masse to, to Mechlin. It was a transit camp, and from there they were deported on trains to Auschwitz and other extermination centers in the east. So Mechlin became the, the, the transit point of all uh, um, Belgian Jews. In fact, a very historic event t- took, took place there which is unique in the annals of the Holocaust, on April 19th, 1943, which ironically was the same day as the breakout of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising on the other side of Europe. So everyone talks about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but another daring operation took place on the same exact day in Belgium. It was the only known instance of the stopping of a death train, of a deportation transport train from Mechlin to Auschwitz, uh, several members of the Belgian resistance, most of them Jews, but I think one or two were non-Jews as well. They were able to stop a death train on the tracks um, and open a couple of the cars and, and encourage the Jews inside to escape. Some of them did and were saved. So a, an incredible instance of, of, of the only known, only one that we know of, where a transport train was stopped in its tracks, literally. Um, A relatively uh, relative to many other countries, Belgian Jewry fared slightly better and a lower percentage of Belgian Jews were murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. And there are several reasons that historians give for it. Um, You know, its geographical location and the French border, there was an escape route to France early on. And even uh, during the war, uh, the um, the the fact that the Belgian resistance was very cooperative very often. The Belgian general population, non-Jewish population, had very strong memories of the brutal German occupation of World War I, the rape of Belgium. And therefore, they were a very, very non-cooperative population, much less cooperative, uh, much less collaborators, much less cooperative in general to the Nazi occupation than almost any other country in Western Europe. Um, and uh, in, like I said, because the Jewish population of Belgium was primarily immigrants from Eastern Europe, Polish Jews uh, were very suspicious of the Nazis early on. They prepared many times hiding places or escape routes. And also in the beginning, if we, let's say we compare for a second Holland and Belgium, two somewhat similar countries, although there's plenty of differences um, and, uh, in size, Um, the Jewish population in Holland, 90% gets exterminated, whereas the Jewish population in Belgium, I think it was 50 or 60%. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Um, So there's a registration of the Jewish population in the beginning of the Nazi occupation. And most Jews in Holland, who are either Dutch or German Jews, they complied with the registration. All of them, you know, listened, and the Nazis registered their names and addresses. Whereas the Polish immigrant Jews in Belgium, none of them complied. Why should we listen? Uh, so that, uh, that um, you know, the, uh, I don't know how to say this without being in stereotyping in a not nice way, but it seems that the, uh, you know, Yakish compliance and the Polish non-compliance, uh, you know, may have been a factor in, in two very different outcomes uh, uh, in, in, as far as uh, registering uh, in the Nazi registration of Jews at the beginning of the war. Um, so there's all kinds of other factors that come into play. Um, another uniqueness of the Belgian uh, Jewish community in the post-war is that they have a somewhat successful rehabilitation, which is another story, and perhaps we can explore that another time. So now that we have the context, we can go into the story of Jonah jo and and the orphanage that he maintains during and after the war. Um, there's all kinds of interviews with survivors about it, uh, and there's a, books, a book written about it, a movie produced by Torah Messara about it. There's quite a lot of material out there. If you want to further explore it, and if this story seems interesting to you, you can go check it out. So this fellow, Jonathan Brunner, is born in Weissbaden in Germany in 1914, into a family of Tzanzer Hasidim from Galicia. So they're not, you know, in Weisbaden, they're relatively new. And, you know, uh, the area of Tarnow, they had come from. immigrated to Germany two years prior, in 1912. Like many other Ostjuden, like many other Polish Jews seeking economic opportunity in Germany, they, like many others of their day, would you know see the increased number of Ostjuden, Eastern Jews, Polish Jews in Western Europe, especially in Germany, and a great increase after World War One. But it was already a trend before. And parenthetically, it's an overlooked phenomenon. Of the Great Immigration, the ones who the ones who immigrated out of Russia, out of Poland, out of Eastern Europe, but stayed in Europe, uh, they migrated from east to west. So there were large communities of of Eastern European Jews in Germany, France, Belgium, and other Western European countries from the late 1800s until the war. Um, the ones who did not immigrate to the United States and other places, they stayed in Europe, but different places in Europe. But I digress. So let's get back to um, Mr. Yona Tiefenbrunner. So of his large family, most were eventually killed in the Holocaust. Only he in this orphanage and two other brothers survived, one in the British army. Uh, the Kedushas Tzian of Babov, um, Rabbi Tzian Halberstam, would vacation in Weisbaden and he would stay in the Tiefenbrunner home. So Yona was a student in the Frankfurt Yeshiva of of Breuer, uh, a few miles away. Weisbaden is not far from Frankfurt. And when uh, Hitler came to power, he was beaten up at a local Nazi rally by former classmates of his. That's an important part of the story. Uh, who were former friends of his, classmates of his, and were now members of the Hitler Youth, uh, beat him up at a local Nazi rally. So a very quick transformation of the local German population, the regulars, the locals, the citizens of Germany. Um, and and uh, and he, he joins as a reaction to it, interestingly enough, he joins Payolei HaGodes Yisrael in Frankfurt. He later found a job to assist in the struggling financial position, situation of the family. Um, and then he left that job to attend the Jewish teachers' seminary in Cologne. This is all under Nazi, uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Also a rabbinical seminary in Berlin in the late 1930s of Nazi Germany. It seems almost unbelievable, but he did that. It's amazing that these institutions were still operating. In the late 1930s, and towards the end of October 1938, his family was expelled to Poland because they were still Polish citizens, and this was to serve as the catalyst for Kristallnacht a few weeks later, when Polish Jewish citizens were expelled to the border towns. Um, he was in Berlin at the time, so when he heard his family had been expelled, he realized he was in danger, and he escaped to Belgium. A few days before Kristallnacht, and he's now a refugee. Hundreds of German Jewish refugees were streaming into Belgium at this point, including many children um, with, uh, without, without their families. The Belgian Jewish community established a framework to care for these children, and Johanna Tiefenbrunner was hired to oversee one of these homes for teenage German Jewish refugee boys in Haida. And they would work by day, they had a job during the day, and attend the yeshiva, the Haida yeshiva that I mentioned before, in the evening. May 9th, 1940, he married Ruth Feldheim, another German-Jewish refugee from Frankfurt. They were actually acquainted from Frankfurt. They knew each other. And the next day, May 10th, Belgium was invaded by Nazi Germany. So that must have been an interesting honeymoon. And the early stage of the orphanage begins at this time. He moves with some of the children to Antwerp. And he had to... He did not run away. Like, you know, many many Jews were escaping to France. He stays. He stays with the orphans, whoever was not able to make it out on their own. He had to fund it on his own in the early stages. There was no public funding available. And these uh, children learned a profession during the day under Nazi occupation, and they attended yeshiva at night. Again, this is under the Nazi occupation in the early years, unique to Western Europe when there aren't ghettos. The Nazis do appoint a somewhat sort of Judenrat, a Jewish a leadership administrative council, similar to the Judenrats of the Eastern European ghettos, um, and uh, and they they are supposed to be the heads of the Jewish community. The Nazi appointed heads of the Jewish communities to represent the, the, the to be the in between the Jewish community and the Nazi uh, uh, occupiers. These these Judenrats are another great story. Uh, because these uh, they had a tragic role. They're, they're always in, in between a rock and a hard place because whose interests are they representing? Are they just carrying out Nazi orders or are they re- attempting to represent Jewish interests and they're really stuck in between and many of them are loathed in history. Many of them are praised and many of them like actually, all of them, it's really, really somewhere in the middle. There's a lot of shades of gray. It's a really complicated and nuanced and complex situation, these Judenrats, but we'll save that for another time. There was a very strange Nazi rule that allowed in Belgium orphanages and old age homes to operate legally. Um, and the, there's, it's, you know, supposedly the Belgian royal family had some sort of role in this. There's, they are, you know, the Queen Mother. Uh, Elizabeth the queen mother of uh, mother of Leopold III who has a very controversial role during World War II but his mother um, she she was uh, she is recognized in 1965 uh, by Yad Vashem as a righteous among the nations she definitely did a lot in, as much as she could in her power to uh, save Jewish children, to save other Jewish hospital patients. And she interceded with the Nazi authorities on several occasions and met with Jewish leaders on several occasions. Um, so she played some sort of role here. It's not clear exactly if it was related to Yonatif and Brunner's orphanage or not. But she uh, she uh, was recognized by Yad Vashem as, for her role in saving Jews and risking her life to do so. Um, as a righteous among the nations, she also became the first member of any royal family, I believe, worldwide for sure, from Europe to visit Israel in 1959. So she's an interesting woman as well. But what happens is that the deportations commence in the summer of 1942, and at that time, in this uh, same summer, when the Nazis start deporting Jews from Mech- from, from their homes to Mechlin and then from Mechlin to Auschwitz, they authorize that elderly and children, Jewish children, Jewish elderly, can legally be registered in officially recognized homes, old age homes and orphanages, with a full staff, and they will not be deported. And they could operate fully under the eyes of the Gestapo. And this is a very bizarre dispensation, and several factors seem to lie behind the reasoning of this seemingly bizarre dispensation. First of all, There is this alleged unwillingness of the Belgian population to collaborate with the Nazis, unlike other countries. So it seems that there was less collaboration, and the Nazis had to operate here differently. Uh, That seems to be one factor. There is, as a continuation of of that first point, there seems to be a growing resistance in Belgium to the Nazi occupation, and the Nazis had to deal with that as well. There's the intercession of the Queen Mother and other righteous among the nations that I mentioned. More likely, it was due to Nazi internal factors. In general, that is a, a golden rule. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's good to remember that most often in the, in the story of the Holocaust, the reason Jews were saved or not is usually due to the Nazis' internal issues and their internal decisions and had very little effect from outside saviors, unfortunately, even though outside saviors and we would love to give them more credit, but usually it had to do with much more technical internal Nazi uh, uh, issues, and I'll get back to that in later episodes in this series. So uh, it played a larger role, and the, um, he, the Nazis m- made this claim that the deportations were to send were to send Jews for labor in the East. They're obviously not going to say that they're they're rounding up Jews and deporting them from Mechlin to be exterminated in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Then then that would not serve their. They would want to you know keep the population calm. They would want to keep the Jews calm. They don't want, They want to deceive them until the last second. So they say, oh, they're being sent to labor camps in the East. So in order to lead give credence to their claim they would spare those who could not work. So then it would sound believable. Children can't provide any labor in the East. Elderly cannot provide any labor in the East. So we say we're establishing homes for the children and elderly, and therefore you see that it's really only for labor in the East. Otherwise we would be sending everyone, right? And that would calm down the Jewish population. Another factor the Nazis had would that this would lure children and potential staff out of hide, hiding in order to be in these homes. These homes are registered with the Nazis. The names of every person who is employed and uh, living in these homes are registered by the Gestapo. So this would enable to make it easier for them to deport them at a later, later date. And having the elderly children and staff in regulated places under their watch and control would facilitate their deportation at a later date and not engender a sense of panic. So this is probably why the Nazis gave this dispensation. But after all said and done, it had to be something unique about Belgium because this policy was not really implemented in other occupied countries in Western Europe. So it definitely was something unique to Belgium. So now the orphanage that he's been operating until this point becomes a place of saving the the orphans. It's a place of rescue during the deportations. When the AGB, this, this uh, Judenrat, this Ameri- you know, Association of Jew- Jewish, uh, uh, Belgian Jewish uh, Association, the, the, the Judenrat that I mentioned, it was called the AGB. It stands for something in French or German, whatever it is. So it starts um, you know, establishing these homes. They're the ones authorized to establish the homes. The, um, the AGB assumed official responsibility of the Tiefenbrunner home. Because the Nazi oppression towards Jews was strongest in Antwerp and all of Belgium, so Yonah and Ruth Tiefenbrunner had already moved their home to Brussels in the beginning of 1942. They now occupied a townhouse in, 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 in Brussels, and their official name of the place was the Jewish Orphanage of Brussels, a, a French name, of course, but it was known as the Tiefenbrunner Home. So the Deeperbrunner home becomes one of the seven orphanages in Belgium that were eventually operated by the AGB under the German occupation. The orphanages were given quite a bit of leeway in terms of internal management and the education of the orphans therein. The AGB provided the food and the clothing for the children and all materials needed for maintenance and operation for the physical premises. So now, with the AGB, they acquire. The home, Sayona's financial burden was eased. He didn't have to fund it. The AGB did that. Of all the orphanages, the Tiefenbrunner home had two important distinctions. First of all, it was the only one directed by religious Jews and run completely according to Torah principles. And it was also the only orphanage that was never referred to by its official name, but rather as simply the Tiefenbrunner home. It gave it more of a homey uh, heimische feel. When one realizes the extent that... Yona devoted himself to these orphans. It is it is little wonder that the surviving children never referred to it as the AGB orphanage. They called it the Tiefenbrunner home, which is a big distinction in the survivors' minds. So Yona and Ruth, they ran this home as a religious home with a big family, basically, who welcomed each newcomer with open arms and hearts. Um, there are several time periods. Each one is fascinating on its own. From 1939 to 1942, it's for refugees, both before and during the Nazi occupation. There's German Jewish orphans, war orphans, children who had been hidden, um, and then the payments stopped. So, so the 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 non-Jew who was hiding them brought them to the home uh, parents who were deported, and that is the stage. This early stage until 1942. Like I said, he met, he operated it on his own, and he moved the orphanage to Brussels, uh, uh, where it remained throughout the war. And then, from 1942 to 1944, is the period of the deportations. This is the wildest and most heroic part of the story because it operated legally under the Nazis' noses, funded by the AGB, with a legal staff, no deportations from the orphanages, but periodic and terrifying inspections from the Gestapo, which I'll get back to. Even a staff member, member registered with the Nazis as There was even a staff member who was registered with the Nazis as a teacher of religion. So the Nazis authorized that there be a teacher of the Jewish religion in the home, and that person was not deported because they were employed by this orphanage. So it's really an incredible situation. Um, Then later there's the post-war period. From 1945 to 1960, the orphanage was closed down in 1960. But for those 15 years, there's refugees, Holocaust survivors, refugees from Eastern Europe, the whole post-war conditions of the orphanage, which he continued to operate it under the auspices of the uh, Belgian Jewish community. So he had to run the orphanage, the financial situation, the physical, spiritual, social. He was known to the orphans as Monsieur. Uh, that's how they called him, um, and Monsieur, uh, uh, and he he was you know his beloved title they bestowed upon him. They. They looked at him as a father. The first impressions that many of these arriving children had was of a it was kind of surreal. Uh, the world they had inhabited now was fear, arrest, deportation of their parents, disappearing without warning, never to be seen or heard from again, hiding a very you know fearful situation. And now they come into these this home, and these frightened children saw something they hadn't seen for a long time: friendly faces. Uh, a man wearing a yarmulke, dozens of religious children sitting in a dining room eating kosher food, you know, almost like a, a it was like surrealistic. It was, it was, it seemed, seemingly this little island of rescue. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, there's one girl who said in her testimony, Um, that she arrived at the home in 1943. Her parents were from Antwerp, had hidden her with a non-Jew in return for payment. But then her parents are deported to Mechlin and then to Auschwitz. So the payment stopped coming. So this woman, this non-Jewish woman, no longer was able to care for her. So she took her to the Tiefenbrunner Orphanage and she knocked on the door and she said to Yonah, you see this child? She's Jewish. Either you take her off my hands or I'll drop her off by the Gestapo. And uh, she describes that when she goes into the, she went into the home, she was accepted into the home, all of a sudden there's laughter, there's music, there were, there were, there were children getting piano lessons. Um, it was neat. They're well-mannered. He said they, all of a sudden they had a family again. And it was no small feat to generate this island of tranquility amid the backdrop of a raging war. So the Tiefenbrunner sacrificed a lot uh, to maintain the, both the spiritual and physical uh, reality of the home. They would celebrate Shabbos and Jewish holidays. Every morning began with davening. The, the the bar mitzvah boys would put on tefillin. They they would recite brachas before eating, and and they they were taught you know they were taught Jewish studies. You know they they were taught about ani and Shema to say before they went to sleep. Shabbos and Yantif, like as if it was regular. You know they they. Yeinah made sure that there was a white shirt for, for Shabbos for every every boy in the home, um, and, 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 and Shabbos clothes for the girls. There was a minion at the home every Shabbos, and even some Jews in hiding would join them from the outside. Uh, Rabbi, there were two rabbinim, two rabbis, Rabbi Firework and Rabbi Lovi, who were in hiding, and they would come there for davening every Shabbos. Um, after davening, the children would line up Friday night by Masyur, Monsieur, Monsieur to figure how to pronounce that, for to, to, to get their Friday night blessing. And he would place his hands on their head, each and every one, one at a time, and give them their blessing. Then they would have challah, like a regular Shabbos. They would discuss the parsha. They would sing Zmiris Sukkahs They would build a sukkah in the courtyard, in the backyard. Um, they had a Hanukkah, Iran Hanukkah, Purim. They would have, um, uh, you know, a Purim play and costumes, and they would clean the place for Pesach, and and uh, you know, they, they they literally had a, a they would bake matzahs. They would bake matzahs in a in a, a, a bil- Belgian biscuit factory that they would they would have to kasher and they kashered under the auspices of a rabbi um, who was also officially in hiding. And they would bake their own matzahs. It, it, it was un- unbelievable. Um, the, the the so they um they and every, at the Pesach Seder they would the children would recite Manishtana. They would celebrate bar mitzvahs of the boys, and he would, you know, try to be their father for their bar mitzvah to, to be there for them. Um, and uh, they 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 were able to maintain some sort of semblance of normalcy. Um, they had schooling. They had schooling. He hired teachers who were saved because of that. They were able to be the teachers. Um, they he himself and another fellow, Mr. Seligman Bamberger, would would teach them, you know, Hebrew, davening, and diktuk, and chomish rashi, and Jewish history. He would hire teachers to to teach them general knowledge subjects. Sometimes the older children taught the younger ones. He also was able to save several Jewish teachers who had been university professors before they were fired from their jobs from being Jewish. Um, And now... They taught these teenage he, they taught the older children, they taught teenage children French and Flemish, math and history, geography, science, drawing, music, gymnastics. Um, they, he, hired, he had a staff member that included Dr. Spurka, a pediatrician, a dentist, a cook, counselors. So his staff were saved because of him also. Um, so they, they, the Gestapo issued legal working papers to the adults who worked in these homes. Um, So he constantly submitted applications to the Gestapo for the maximum amount of staff members, making every effort to save as many as he could. In one instance, a young woman approached him for a job and he had no spare working papers, so he personally arranged work for her in another orphanage to save her life as well. So this, this, um, this, uh, this, the, 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 he was there. He was like a father to them. Uh, his his you know his wife Ruth and him they managed this home. They maintained this home. Um, they they had they gave jobs to each of the children to make them feel part, feel responsible. They would sometimes go on field trips to parks on the outskirts um, to get them their food. Caring for their basic physical needs was a big challenge. Among the universal catastrophes, the war had wreaked uh, upon society was the problem of food shortages, and of course even though the AGB was officially funding it, but there was always a f- food shortage. And the anti-shechita laws made it that there was no kosher meat. And uh, since the protein was missing in their diet, so Dr. Sperka, the pediatrician on, on site, he, he said that uh, you, need to, uh, you, you have to give them some meat twice a week because they're getting weak, they're, they're suffering from malnutrition, some of them are getting sick. So Yonah goes into a rabbi in hiding and asks him, rabbi Lovi, and asks him a halacha question, can he use non-kosher meat? And the rabbi paskin that the smallest and weakest children can receive non-kosher meat under specific circumstances. And he advised Yonah to kosher the meat as if it were meat provided from shechita. And then he obtained, Yonah obtained separate pots for his wife Ruth to cook the meat in, in a separate corner of the kitchen. And these children ate their portions in a separate dining room. Um, And years later, Ruth Tiefenbrunner would recount the challenge of smelling and the tempting aromas wafting from the pots of meat she cooked and prepared because none of the others had had meat for years. And never once did she or the others taste any of the meat unless they were the ones, the children, who actually needed it because of their weakness or sickness. Uh, Very often the Gestapo would come and do inspections. Um... Raids on the Tiefenbrunner home to ascertain that the orphanage was not sheltering any authorized, unauthorized persons, no children above the age of 16, no adults who were not staff members. Sudden night times raids were part of their way to instill fear and panic so that the children uh, may disclose their real ages. So they would, they, would, they would ask them suddenly, you know, rip them out of bed and ask them how old they are. And you know, if, if their child was over sixteen, they were officially had to be kicked out of the orphanage. And of course, Yona wouldn't do that. So they would be trained to answer that they were still only fifteen. Uh, one evening, a German officer and his and, and his soldiers stormed into the home. He ordered all children out so they could search the house. Yona began arguing with the officer in German, telling him that it was impossible because it was the middle of the night. The officer turns around and he says, "Where are you from?" Because he saw he had a German accent. So he said, I'm from Weisbaden. So he said, yeah, I'm from Weisbaden too. So the officer, the Nazi Gestapo officer, starts questioning Jonathan and Brunner. And they realize that they attended the same public school. And they and they start schmoozing. They start uh, sharing pleasant memories of their public school days. And when they're finished talking, the officer wa- says good night and walks out and, and stops the inspection. And... Um, he once hid a an adult in the home in the attic, and the Nazis came to look for look for this runaway, and and they searched the attic, and the electricity for some reason didn't work. All kinds of miracles that happened in uh, in, in, in 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 that he did a great you know to hide others aside from the orphans in the home uh, as well. There was a child in the home named Herbert Kessler that recalled the time that Yona went straight into the lines. Then he went to Gestapo headquarters to demand the release of a child with the dire knowledge that they could easily shoot him on the spot for coming in. So he, the way he remembered it, from taking it straight from his testimony, so this, this young boy, Kessler, says, they once on a Shabbos morning during davening, Mr. Tiefenbrunner approached me and said, Herbert, take off your talus and come with me. Of course, a yucky, wore a t- you know, wore a talus. So we left the house and he, they headed for the, the trolley, the, the tram. So he said, we're going to travel on Shabbos, so how come we're going on Shabbos? He so said that there's a, the Gestapo was holding, bo- holding a boy that they were ready to free, but there's no time to lose because they could change their minds. So their life's at risk and we need to get this boy out of here and we're going on Shabbos. I'm going to tell them I'm not leaving without the boy, but I want you to come with me so that if something happens, you'll report back to the home informing them that I won't be back. When we reached the Gestapo headquarters, he told me to wait at the street corner. From there, the entrance of the Gestapo headquarters was clearly visible. Keep checking to see if they take us away in a car. Wait exactly a half hour. He handed me his gold watch that I could keep track of the time. If I don't come back with the child in half hour, return as quickly as you can to the home and tell them to disperse all the children within two hours to hiding places. Maybe I'll return later, so somebody should stay and watch at the house. Send the children to play, but don't... Tell them anything. If I don't come back, I advise uh, one of the senior staff members in the home that I've been arrested and that everybody should run and hide since they'll come for everyone in the home as well. He entered the Gestapo headquarters and I waited at the corner with his watch in my hand. My eyes peeled on the entrance. I waited and waited. I don't think that in my life I've ever, ever experienced such a long half hour. At the last minute, he came out with the child white as a sheet. He shook my hand and we returned to the home. The morning prayers were over, and he didn't mention a word about what had happened. But the next Friday night, when it was my turn to receive his weekly blessing, his hand rested a little longer on my hand, and he shook my hand with more strength than usual as he greeted me with a good Shabbos. So there's another story. Um, The Nazis, at the last minute, right before the Allies came into Belgium, at the end of the war, they tried to deport the children. This was their plan all along. So in August of 1944, they wanted to deport all the elderly and Jewish children that they had in these orphanages and, and old age homes. Of course, this is what they planned all along, and uh, and 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 the AGB tipped off. Yona Tiefenbrunner about it beforehand, and he hid the Jews in a convent. And Father Robinette, a Catholic priest, was an acquaintance of Yona, and he risked his life to hide the Jews in this convent uh, for the last few weeks of the war. Yona found a hiding place with his wife and child, and for the last few weeks before the Allies liberated uh, Brussels, uh, um, two weeks really, um, he uh, they, they they were able to be saved. Um, after you know, after that, he reestablished the orphanage later on in. In, uh, in Antwerp and in the post-war he um, continues the orphanage in Antwerp now taking in um, um, refugees from Eastern Europe orphans Holocaust children who are the only survivors from their families they had grown up in some of them in non-jewish homes during the war they, they didn't even want to relinquish their Catholic faith they they had they're wearing crosses some of them we're, were par- hidden with the partisans. One of them walks into the orphanage carrying a gun. He had to deal with the PTSD of these children. These children who had grown up in fear, in and as with Catholic identities in the forests, and unbelievable. And he treats each and every one like a father. He marries them off. He raises them. One of them um, who had who had uh, you know who had got pocket money from some odd jobs she did. He asked her to give it to him. And he said, trust me, you'll need it one day. And instead of this child who would squander the money on, their, on her own, he saved every penny, he never took one cent of it for himself. And on the day of her wedding, he gave the entire sum to her and said, this is what it's for, now I'm giving it to you. Another child from this Kinderheim, from the... Uh, from the orphanage got engaged in Switzerland after the war and he insisted on traveling from Antwerp to Switzerland by train to meet the prospective groom and give his approval of the match because he treated each orphan as, as a child um, the orphanage closed down in 1960 since there was no you know refugees left there' was no you know it was already no, no orphans uh, left it was it, it, it wasn't needed anymore His health immediately deteriorated to a certain extent he lived for these children he lived for the orphanage. He, his, he, didn't, he didn't watch his weight afterwards. He got depressed. His, his heart disease, his, his, the stress of all the years during the war and running into the orphanage after the war caught up with him. And, uh, and he died shortly afterwards. So the irony uh, of his own children becoming orphans. He was in his 40s when he passed away. His children were young. He was 48. Um, and uh, and uh, he didn't live to see his own children get married or have his own grandchildren. It's a very tragic ending. But the hundreds of children who he saved... Eventually built their own families, and there's literally thousands of people alive today who uh, were rescued as a, a result of his efforts. So that is the story of Jonah Tiefenbrunner Monsieur. and um, we will have continue this series. Hopefully, the next episode will be either about the Bielski brothers, um, or or perhaps the story of Oswald Rufeisen, brother Daniel, the story of how he saved Jews in the Mir ghetto, or perhaps one of the other stories. Haven't decided yet what will be next. But if you're interested in sponsoring the next profile of, of in this series, please be in touch with me. And this is Yehuda Gabriel, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGabriel.com for questions, comments, source, tu- sources, tours, trips. Uh, and um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.